Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the Everything 80s Podcast. Today we're looking at 12 things that made the 1980s the greatest decade. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie, and today we're looking at 12 amazing things that made the 80s stand out, um, why it was such a great decade, why we love these things so much. But before we get to that, if you haven't already, here's the obligatory subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast messages. Okay, that's done. Let's get right to it. Okay, so as we're looking back here... um, there, if you grew up in the decade, you know, like you know, it's an amazing time to be alive. If you're from a younger generation, you might be curious looking back uh, at what the '80s was all about. Like you see it popping up and just kind of you know retro stuff, and um, you know, is a time where you had a lot of you know some of the best movies of all time, some of the best music ever made, some of the best TV shows, iconic toys. It's you know, kind of like the decade associated with nostalgia and the style, you know, the memories kind of live on. So I, me personally, I was born in the late seventies and similar to anyone who was born that, um, born then we weren't a child of the seventies, but one of the eighties, we were just getting old enough to embrace everything the eighties would have to offer. So that isn't to say that if you were older in the eighties that you didn't appreciate it, but you know, your main and fondest memories tend to be when you're a kid. So, you know, if you grew up right in the heart of the 80s, those are the things you tend to remember the best. They, they call it golden age thinking. It's kind of looking back with, you know, rose colored glasses. But, you know, most things always seem better when you're a kid. You ask, and, and it's applicable to any decade. If you ask anyone who grew up, no matter what decade, they will tell you that's when things were the best. Like sports were better. Music was better. Movies were better. It was just a better time to be alive. Like we just look back on these things fondly. And as you know, the time goes by, we don't tend to think about all the crap that was happening. We tend to remember, you know, the last time we had a memory of it. And over time, I think this filters out any of the garbage and then you're left with pure nostalgia. So this is just going to look at 12 things that I think made the 80s the greatest decade. So, you know, they're, of course, from my vantage point. So you can yell or scream at me in any way you want. Okay. The first thing is the movies. So, you know, it's hard to say when a golden age of movies was, it might be, um, and it might be hard to argue that the eighties was kind of like the prime of movies. It gave us some of the biggest movies and trilogies of all time and really gave rise to the blockbuster. Like even though Star Wars would get the ball rolling in 1977, it was the momentum and the fandom really took shape in the eighties. And then obviously you have the empire strikes back return of the Jedi and that just allowed it to grow and people were able to die. Like I think in Star Wars when it came out in 1977, it caught people just off guard and people just didn't know how to process it. But as the years go, that's when the fandom grew and the appreciation grew and, you know, these 
people now had this whole new thing in their lives that they could go deep into this world with and everything like that. The eighties could also be called, be called the Spielberg era because you've got the classics like, um, ET, which was actually the highest money making movie of the eighties. You had the Goonies, you had the Indiana Jones movies. You know, this is luckily, you know, before kingdom of the crystal skull, um, came out, which that movie can rot in hell. This is the era that brought us the PG 13 rating, which was the perfect movie classification. It allows things to not be so family friendly, but it doesn't push the envelope too far so that, you know, younger people were isolated from it. And it was actually Indiana Jones and the temple of doom that would lead to the very first PG or the creation of the PG 13 rating. But this set the tone for an awesome genre of movies, and that, and we can thank the '80s for that. You also have my all-time favorite, Back to the Future, and then the epic sequel that com- combined all the best elements of um, time travel and adventure and everything like that. So with Back to the Future Two, you get a look into the past, the future, and it sort of acts as a prequel, taking us back to the original movie. So I, I think it's just perfect. There's so many movies we can go on about. Um, I mean, that's a whole podcast on its own just you know 80s movies but here are some of the notable movies that round out the decade so you got ghostbusters beverly hills cop top gun crocodile dundee um three men and a baby you had gremlins you had batman people always think of it in the 90s but it makes the cut falls in just under the gun there okay second thing that made the 80s a great decade gi joe gi joe is one of a handful of iconic toys and cartoons from the 80s. Uh, there's a bunch, but it's kind of in that top three, I would say. If you're a kid growing up in this decade, G.I. Joe is one of the biggest parts of your life. Your day would be centered around getting home in time to watch it on TV. Birthdays and Christmas and whatever would be based around asking for and hopefully getting any of the toys or the vehicles or whatever. It's still not, I still haven't got the aircraft carrier for Christmas. It's been going on 30 years. G.I. Joe, you know, created by Hasbro, it had existed in decades, you know, in the larger figure form. Uh, During the Vietnam War, though, uh, any war-based toys took a massive hit in the sales department, and it was really hard to market and sell them. But thanks to the success of the Star Wars toy line, G.I. Joe was now kind of reintroduced in 1982 as a 3.75-inch version as opposed to its old 12-inch size. And there's also a connection with sort of the oil crisis at the time that they, they couldn't make figures as big. And I think that's what star Wars was kind of at the front for was shrinking down action figures and G and they were obviously a massive success. GI Joe followed suit and entered the action figure. As you know, it, they also created one of the first marketing approaches by using a cartoon show as basically a 30 minute commercial. Well, actually 22 minutes of show and then the rest eight minutes of commercial time in order to sell new toys and making the figures smaller also allowed for Hasbro to make a ton of vehicles they could sell with them that wouldn't be gigantic. I don't know if that, I don't think that was the intention, but I think that was a happy accident because if you look back at the old sixties and seventies GI Joe, when it was the giant 12 inch thing, they didn't have a lot of vehicle accessories because they would have just been too big. I think they had some sort of space pod Thing. But, you know, they're they're big. But now that these things are smaller, they can introduce planes and tanks and um, hovercrafts and all sorts of cool stuff. So <laughs> they would make a lot of these things. They would end up making over 250 different vehicles. And I wanted every single one of them. And the big thing they did with the cartoon, which other toy companies would soon follow, and now it's commonplace, but wasn't really much at the time, was 
They gave G.I. Joe a backstory. Up until then, he had just been an army man. And now he had an enemy in Cobra and a real mission to follow. So when you combine this backstory with traditional marketing and a cartoon and all this together, it's basically like crack for a 10-year-old kid. There was no way to resist the allure of G.I. Joe, and it makes it makes it one of the best toys and cartoons of all time, I would say. Okay, number three, the music. The 80s brought us so much new variety when it came to music, along with new genres and everything like that. Up until then, I mean, pop music was pretty much rock-based. You had disco and everything like that. You had R&B, you had jazz, everything. But, you know, a lot of what you're listening to was rock music heavy metal was becoming more prominent in the 70s and you know pop music's always been in the mix but the 80s brought us some new categories and variations we hadn't really heard before it's obvious again this is another giant topic we're just looking at it roughly um but when you think of the 80s you know you'll think of probably michael jackson who ruled over it all you think of madonna and you think of you too it was the era where we introduced a new art form called hip-hop, which I'll cover a bit more in a sec. It gave us new wave music and bands like Devo and New Order and everything like that. We started seeing more house music and uh, more of a growth of punk rock. Death metal became a thing and Metallica emerged in the 80s. Again, like disco was thankfully long dead, but we are hearing more synthesizer-based music and more electronic production the 80s still, you know, it still featured the classic bands like the Rolling Stones and Queen who actually found a whole new generation of fans. And a lot of this all comes together because of MTV, which would launch in 1981 and would forever change the way we consume music. Bands and artists now had to learn this new way to present themselves in this new visual medium. And some bands were left behind that couldn't sort of adapt to this new format and this new platform. Um, but the thing with MTV is it also expose people to more music that they weren't just hearing on the radio, like the regular top 40. And again, it opened up all this new variety in these new genres. And again, this was the time when album sales meant everything. And it's where the real money was made. Unlike today. So let's look at the, okay, here's the top selling albums by year in the eighties, 1980. See if you can answer before I read them out. 1980 pink Floyd, the wall, 1981 top selling album, REO Speedwagon with High Infidelity. 1982 was Asia with their self-titled album Asia. That's awesome. And this is amazing. In 1983 and 1984, the number one album was obviously Thriller by Michael Jackson. That's incredible that it was a top-selling album in two consecutive years. 1985, number one album, Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA. 1986, Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston, 1987 was Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. 1988, sort of surprising, I thought. It was George Michael and Faith, but maybe not if you look back. 1989 was Bobby Brown with Don't Be Cruel. Okay, here is the year-end Billboard number one songs of the 80s. So at the end of the year, number one. 1980 was Call Me by Blondie. 1981, Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. 1982 was Physical by Olivia Newton-John. 83, Every Breath You Take, The Police. 84, When Doves Cry by Prince. 85 was Careless Whisper by Wham. 86 was That's What Friends Are For, Dion and Friends, which was uh, we sang at my grade 8 graduation. It was brutal. 1987 was Walk Like an Egyptian by The Bangles. 88 was Faith by George Michael. And 89 
was Look Away by Chicago. So I don't know if there's any surprises to you there. I don't remember Chicago being at the top of the charts. And again, and definitely not Dion and Friends. That was obviously a big hit. I did see Chicago live a year or two ago with Earth, Wind & Fire. They were unbelievable. Just check them out. So there's a good chance you owned a majority of those albums. And it's most notably a decade where you would sit with your tape deck, listening to the radio, ready to jump on the song you were waiting to record. Except, of course, DJs would talk over most of the intro so you couldn't like bootleg everything. But that leads us into number four of the greatest things of the 80s, the mixtape. If you want to put the 80s in a nutshell, it may be the mixtape. There, you know, obviously no such thing as MP3, Apple Music, Spotify, nothing, obviously. If it wasn't even really CDs until a little bit later, and they weren't more commonplace till later in the decade. If you wanted to capture music, you had to sit diligently by your tape deck, ju- tape deck just waiting for whatever song you wanted to hear. You would call up radio stations to request it. I did that with 1410 CKSL here where I live. You had to hope you had a good trigger finger. Um, This was also the era of the dual cassette tape deck, which meant you could copy tapes and put together your own mixes. If you knew someone um, or someone you knew how to tape you wanted, you could copy it over onto a blank one and it was yours. It was amazing. Then there was the great advent of, you remember, high-speed dubbing, which would transfer that tape even faster. It was brilliant. Now, with your collection of cassettes, you could make your own compilations and the mixtape was born from this era. To me, this was the 80s version of a love letter as you could put together all the meaningful songs to give to the person you like. I guess now you can do that with, you know, curated Spotify playlists or Apple Music playlists. Um, But that's just a few quick taps. The mixtape took legit work, effort, and commitment. And that's what made a mixtape such a special gift. So now that you have, you know, got this killer mixtape, you've painstakingly put it together. What were you going to listen to it on? And this is number five of the top greatest things of the eighties, the Walkman. The Walkman changed the way we consume music. It it allowed us to take it on the go. And it was also, you know, kind of a style statement at the same time. Uh, We've obviously, we've always had portable music and transistor radios and they've existed for years, but you were forced to listen to whatever the radio station was playing with the Walkman, you now had something that was catered just to you. Every tape you put in was your choice and it revolved around your tastes and your lifestyle. Sony invented the Walkman in 1980. It was almost called the Soundabout. It was created because the owner of Sony at the time wanted to be able to listen to his music while traveling. They had portable tape players, but they were you know too big and bulky and not convenient at all. The forefather of the Walkman was called the Pressman, which I was kind of just referring to. It was a mono cassette recorder, but the owner of Sony wanted this, but he wanted it shrunken down and he wanted it just for playback so he could listen to it on planes when he traveled. So when the Walkman was released, Sony, I have a whole other show just on the Walkman, but this is just a quick recap. When the Walkman was released, Sony was hoping they could sell around 5,000 units a month. In the first two months, they sold 50,000. So Again, it became a bit of a, a statement when, you know, especially when they released the yellow sport Walkman with the yellow earphones, kind of an, it was like an accessory, sort of the way, you know, when the first iPod was introduced and the white earbuds, it, it was sort of a style statement, um, you know, but now you had your own personal listening device that you could listen to your favorite type of music. And that will move us into the next tip of um, favorite things of the 80s. And that was hip hop. 
a whole new art form. So hip hop has its roots in the Bronx and specifically with DJ Cool Herc, who is credited as the godfather of hip hop. And it's one of those things that came together quite naturally. Uh, It's, you know, started at house parties and Herc wanted to always keep people dancing, keep them moving. And, you know, they would play funky records, specifically things like James Brown. And albums like that contain moments which they call breaks, which is where there wouldn't be any lyrics and you would just mainly hear the instruments and usually like primarily like the drums, um, the beat, whatever, like with the bass line or whatever. And that those were considered the breaks. So people love dancing to these break beats. And he found that if he had two of the same record, he could play the break beat back to back for an extended period of time. This would lead to people being able to dance longer. And it also led to break dancers. People were dancing during the break. So whenever there would be a party or an event, the DJ would have a master of ceremonies or an MC, and he would usually make announcements. So about like what was coming up, like the next parties or the next events or whatever. So they would keep the music going, but they would use the break portion of the record so the MC's announcements wouldn't get mixed up with the other song lyrics. Over time, the MC, you know, was obviously more it became more of a promotion thing. And if, you know, they're getting more successful, they had more gigs, they wanted to really make everyone know that the next gig or party was going to be epic. And since they were in the spotlight, they would start to embellish things a little bit. They would start turning into, you know, bragging about how good their parties were, how good their DJ was, how good the music was going to be. It came and then it was more into boasting. Then they would kind of like, put little rhymes together to, you know, as they're trying to inform, but they wanted to entertain while they had this moment with the mic and the spotlight, the MCs now would start to, you know, with these little rhymes and productions they put together, they now showcase their skills against other MCs. And that led to, um, kind of battling, which they would call it. And then they would start to put full rhymes together so they could kind of go back and forth with one another. People wanted to hear more of this, this sort of, you know, this new expression. And these MCs would start recording these rhymes um, that they would perform over these different beats that were they found on these records, so they could have their own um, take on it. Wherever there was a part where there wasn't any lyrics, they would use these beats and they would record their new little rhymes over these kind of pretty funky beats. Basically, that's the birth of hip hop, and it would explode in the 80s you know we would get over the 80s we would get legends like grandmaster flash rakim ll cool j run dmc we get then into artists like Nas, a tribe called quest i mean tons and you know then the things would start to move west and i I recommend listening or watching hip-hop evolution on netflix and it's hosted by a guy from my who lived in our own city here named shad and it's brilliant. It just looks more into the depth of the early days of hip hop. But like I said, you know, hip hop moved uh, west, and it started including artists like N.W.A. with Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Easy E, Ice T, Snoop Dogg. You know, uh, we can go on this forever. But you know, hip hop, an amazing thing that came out of the '80s. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters, and. What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, 
so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, the next thing that makes the 80s an amazing decade are the clothes. And we're, you know, it it might be, I don't know if there's a decade that gets mocked as much as the 80s for fashion. Um, I don't know, it might take the cake. But when you think of the 80s, it may conjure up, you know, a lot of images of fluorescent pinks and greens, a lot of um, acid wash, a lot of baggy pants. Velvet scrunchies, crimped hair, all kinds of crap like that. Converse high tops were still big, but there was, um, you know, basically any type of white high top basketball shoe. Again, epic acid wash jeans movement at the time. Everyone had some form of a belt pack or fanny pack or whatever you want to call it. You had leg warmers. You had bike shorts. There's a lot of spandex uh, again. And then, you know, you had groups that would popularize, um, different appearances like baggy clothes again and groups like run dmc would popularize big gold chains white adidas shoes uh the underground punk rock movement would would embrace acid wash and then that would make it into the mainstream and you had you know punk style that was big led by you know like cindy lopper or madonna and everyone was wearing blazers with blouses and giant shoulder pads and you know it's a lot of crap and I, who knows, it probably won't make a comeback, but, you know, you can picture what I'm talking about. Okay, the next best thing to come out of the 80s, Transformers. And arguably, again, the best toy and cartoon of the 80s. Again, If not, it's in that top three. The Transformers toys made by Hasbro were a, I, again, I have a whole other show on Transformers. You can listen to all the history if you look back, one of the first shows I did. And they were a ripoff of the Diaclone toys that were made in Japan. Hasbro basically took them straight up and changed around some of the colors and accessories. But they saw what had happened with the success of G.I. Joe, and they created a three-part TV series in 1984 that was used to launch the toys. I don't know a single kid my age who was not obsessed with Transformers. You had... The iconic characters, Optimus Prime, Megatron, Bumblebee, Starscream, Soundwave, the Dinobots, everything. But like like G.I. Joe, you were watching a 30-minute commercial where they were introducing the backstory of the Transformers along with the characters and the vehicles. We we were idiot kids. We had no idea, but who cares? It was amazing. Um, I remember being crushed one Christmas. I was certain I was getting a Soundwave and based on the box I saw wrapped under the tree. So I'm freaking out. It turned out to be one of those big multi-packs of lifesavers. Do you remember the box? It was like a book. You could open it up and it had like rows of lifesavers crushing. Transformers would lead to a cartoon movie in 86 that would traumatize a lot of kids. The movie killed off a lot of beloved characters. The whole point of this movie was, I mean, there is, there's a lot of creativity that goes behind it, but it was done as a way to clear out old inventory and then introduce a bunch of new ones for their upcoming toy line. So again, you're basically watching a 90 minute commercial to set the stage for this new toy line release. And okay, spoiler alert. This is when Optimus Prime dies. There's such a backlash over this that 
there was massive writing letter campaigns that brought him back into the, I think the second season after that. Okay. The next best thing about the eighties, the TV shows and a bunch of classic sitcoms come away in the eighties and it would eventually lead to what they would call must see TV. Certain nights like Thursday and Friday would become must watch nights where they would stack a bunch of top shows together. You did not want to miss these nights if you wanted to know what the hell everyone was just was talking about. But, I mean, there's so many shows that are notable from the 80s, like Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, Family Ties, Webster, Full House, Cheers, Alf, The Wonder Years, The A-Team, The Dukes of Hazard, Knight Rider. There, there, there's so many beauties from this time period. So, looking at some of the stats here, the number one show, actually, from 1985 to 1990, every single year, what do you think it was? The Cosby Show. I forgot what a juggernaut that thing was. And here's a sample of the top 10 rated highest shows. This is right in 1985, right in the middle of the decade. And here are the ratings these shows got. 1 to 10. Number one, The Cosby Show. 33.7 million viewers. Family Ties, 30. That's a 30.0. Murder, She Wrote, number three, 25.3. Number four is 60 Minutes with 23.9 rating. Number five is Cheers, 23.7. 23.7. 6 is Dallas, 21.9. 7 is Dynasty, 21.8. 8 is The Golden Girls, 21.8. 9 is Miami Vice, 21.3. 10 is Who's the Boss at 21.1. The very highest rated sitcom, sitcoms today will at best do, and, and that's like a one-off thing, will do at best 15 to 18 million viewers, which wouldn't even put them in the top 30 in the 80s. And most shows these days that are considered successful average around four to six million viewers. Obviously, now there's way more many net, there's different networks, all the streaming services. Very few people actually watch live TV anymore. So TV is, I mean, TV is kind of dead. TV is kind of like radio and like streaming services and Netflix and everything. That's like TV now, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like regular t i don't i don't think there's a single thing i watch on tv anymore live except for sports it's either dvr'd or i watch it or stream it online after or like youtube it or whatever but it's just amazing to see that if you were i mean there's basically like three networks in the 80s so whatever was on there's a good chance like a third of the viewing country was watching you and it's amazing like looking at the cosby show and family ties getting over 30 million viewers and that's just an average week that's not including like um big specials or season finales or season premieres or everything like that that's just the average in the 80s um yeah pretty amazing okay next thing that makes the 80s an amazing decade decade the breakfast cereals amazing time to be alive if you're a kid in the 80s because breakfasts were an event there were so many over-the-top sugar-laden cereals with intensive marketing that you could not resist they were colorful, they were novel, they had no nutrition, they probably had some form of free toy inside. It was everything you wanted. It was a big era for interactive cereal boxes and you probably spent your whole breakfast totally engaged in the cereal box. To a kid, this is basically like your daily newspaper was going over this thing. Cereal commercials were basically low-level cartoon shows that were trying to trick you into wanting whatever product, but it was something that could help you identify it. It's why cartoon or sorry, cereals would use cartoon animals 
Um, they call it what's it anthropomorphism, and people kids actually connect more with animals, and they have more trust and more want. So that's why you see all those things like Tony the Tiger and Toucan Sam and everything like that. Very shady marketing technique. But again, nutrition is out the window because the idea of being able to eat cookies for breakfast is mind-blowing. So here is a few notable 80s cereals. And again, I've done a whole show on this one too. Uh, Cookie Crisp, Pac-Man cereal, C-3PO's, one of my favorites, ice cream cone cereal, Smurf Berry Crunch, Pro Stars, that was more of a Canadian thing, Um, E.T. cereal, that might be my all-time favorite too, Marshmallow Krispies, Mr. T cereal, the highest Sugar containing cereal ever is Mr. T cereal. S'mores Crunch. I mean, there's a ton. Okay. A few more things. Let's go. Next best thing of the 80s Save by the Bell. So, Save by the Bell would carry over into the 90s, but it's still 80s at its core. The, the story of Zach, Lisa, Kelly, Jesse, Slater, and Screech would show us this magical world of Bayside High in California. Save by the Bell started as a show called Good Morning, Miss Bliss. They knew the focus of the Miss Bliss character wasn't going to steer the direction of the show, but instead it was this character named Zach Morris looking like it would. Played by, I can never say his name, Mark Paul Gosseler, which I don't even think is right. Zach Morris was a student at John F. Kennedy Junior High in Indianapolis, Indiana. Started in 88 and would only last one season before being retooled as Saved by the Bell. The character of Zach Screech, Lisa, and Principal Belding were brought over from Good Morning, Miss Bliss to Saved by the Bell. The transition had them kind of moving to this fictional town called Bayside. You could, you can almost think of uh, this as Saved by the Bell, the junior high years with um, Good Morning, Miss Bliss. But the character of Zach Morris would actually change a lot. He was kind of like more of a loser in this original one. But now in Saved by the Bell, he would basically get away with everything. Um, he played every sport. He was a musician. He got an impossible 1502 on his SAT scores. The goal was to create one of the only live-action Saturday morning TV shows. Saturday mornings obviously are prime time for cartoons, and doing a live-action show was going to give them a chance to stand out. It also catered to older kids who were starting to get past the cartoon phase but still you know, love the Saturday morning TV experience. The first show they did would be called Dancing to the Max, and the Saved by the Bell era began on August twentieth, 1989, two days after my birthday. Fun fact... The original producers hated the name Saved by the Bell and disallowed it to be used in any of the theme songs. Four different theme songs were made and only one contained the words Saved by the Bell. The producers had to cave to the one we know because it sounded the best by far. But they it's funny, they, they just despise that name. Okay, let's go a few more. The next greatest thing about the 80s, the video games. In case you're not aware, the... Um, the 80s, especially the early 80s, was a time where video games almost died, believe it or not. Basically, no one really wanted to be involved in the production of video games ever again. Like Atari, I've, and I've covered this whole show um, with the AT, ET Atari video game. And, you know, Atari ruled the roost going into the early 80s, but it led to what is called the Great Video Game Crash of 83. And it's. Some people chalk it up to that E.T. Atari video game, which is considered one of the worst of all time. But it's more like it was just the final nail. You know, it had been waiting to happen for a while. Atari had no control over the video games they were, they had that were being released. Anyone could make video games for Atari. And so there was so much crap that flooded the market. And this just, you know, turned 
kids away from like buying video games. There was no trust in it. They were getting more interested in like home computers now that were hitting the market, like the Commodore 64, which could play all those games and do a lot more on top of it. So within a few short years, the video game industry went from around $2 billion a year down to only a hundred million. The cause of like this whole issue caused the crash of, you know, what was seen as like an absolute juggernaut that would never fail. Like they just thought they would cruise through decades and decades, but that the crash caused companies to distance themselves from anything to do with video games. Like companies like Hasbro Mattel were so burned. They lost hundreds of millions of dollars um, with investments in what they thought was a never ending industry, but it died and they just cut those companies started making more traditional toys. They started making, that's where you see things like uh, the pound puppies and, um, micro machines and toy cars going back to more traditional things because they thought video games were done until an upstart company from Japan called Nintendo came on the scene. Japan, sorry, Nintendo had started as a trading card company in Japan in 1889 and eventually over the years moved into electronics and then into video games. They released the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1986 actually 85, but fully in 86, and it would become the best-selling console of its time and change the industry forever. We would also get the Sega, the Sega Genesis, and tons of amazing games. Here are the top 10 selling video games of the 80s. Number one, probably guess Super Mario Brothers from 1985, sold 40.24 million units. Number two, Tetris from 1984, sold 30.26 million copies. Number three, Duck Hunt, 1984, sold 28.31 million copies. This is interesting because most Nintendo packages you bought, like the action set and all that stuff, came with either Mario Brothers or Duck Hunt. And fun fact, Mario wasn't seen as being the flagship of Nintendo. When they first released the NES, Nintendo or Mario was not included in the original box set. Everything was based around... Um, do you remember the Nintendo Rob, the robotic operating buddy, and the games like Gyromite? Duck Hunt was in the mix too, but Mario was never factored in. But that's what actually like would propel Nintendo, but very interesting. Number four, Super Mario Land from 1989, 18.14 million copies. Number five, Super Mario Brothers 3 from 88, 17.28 million copies. Number six, Super Mario Brothers 2 from 88, 7.46 million copies. Number seven, Pac-Man. From 82 for Atari, 7 million copies. Number 8, The Legend of Zelda from 86, 6.51 million copies. Number 9, Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link from 87, which sold 4.38 million copies. And number 10 was a tie between Excite Bike and Pitfall from 84 and 82, respectively, both selling 4.16 million copies. Pretty interesting. Okay. The last thing, and this might sound weird, but the last thing that made the 80s great, and this is a massive topic, which I'll try and sum down, is deregulation. So what the hell is deregulation, might ask? Well, it's responsible for the huge amount of pop culture we experienced in the 80s. Up until this point, the act of advertising to children was heavily regulated. Through a lot of research and study, it was concluded that young children could not differentiate between a TV show and an advertisement. It also showed the damage that happened from targeting youngsters and exposing them to so much promotion. This severely, severely limited the amount of toys and products that could be directed to, uh, and targeted towards children. 
And this is where Ronald Reagan comes into play. One of the first things Reagan does after becoming president is appointing a new head of the FCC in 1981. His name was Mark Fowler. The first thing he did was lift a ban on advertising to kids and said that children's television should be dictated by the marketplace. This is why you see an explosion of cartoons and cartoon-related toys in the 80s, along with like all the cereals and the junk food and all those McDonald's commercials that look like cartoons and everything. There, there is nothing holding manufacturers back from pushing anything they wanted. And that's why we got G.I. Joe, Transformers, My Little Pony, He-Man, Strawberry Shortcake, Voltron, She-Ra. I mean, everything was based because of this deregulation. A lot of work had been done to stop toy-inspired programs. And it's like the, they have like forty to 60,000 pages of research. And there was... Um, lobbies and committees and commissions that were all about like protecting kids from all this advertising and this onslaught and how it would affect them and how it manipulated them and you know work with psychologists and child researchers and educators so much that goes behind all this they just lift it all up they're like nope go nuts the market will dictate everything and that's why you see shows like transformers and gi joe basically being half hour commercials um gem and the holograms all the same thing Again, it's, you know, the huge amount of junk food and cereal releases in the 80s. They make them look like cartoons. And they, it was also the fast food companies, specifically McDonald's, they can make everything look more child-friendly. It's why all the, you know, Grimace and Birdie and all these things are introduced. It's just a way because they know that, you know, I talked about that anthropomorphism and kids identifying with um, animals, especially cartoon animals. And it's why all these things look the same. The kids have no idea what's what at this point, especially the, like the younger ones. When you get over like 12, 13, they can start obviously differentiating stuff and even not that well, but with the younger kids, no clue. Um, it's also like the happy meal would come out in the eighties using that same approach. So the, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword because the intentions were always commercial. Um, Commerce is the name of the game, but it gave us some of the most beloved shows we know today. So I don't know how much how upset we can really be. And, you know, despite the commercial aspects, a lot of these shows really had creativity behind them. And, and they, they were made from creative people and by creative people. They would focus on the story um, just because that's who they were as creators. But, it, you know, it also would create more of an attachment to everything. OK, so we'll wrap it up here. It's funny to think how we have Ronald Reagan to thank for, you know, our most beloved toys and cartoons. They said that kids would dictate the market, dictate the market. If something was good and popular, the kids would let you know. If not, it would fade away. And I guess we did. You know, it was if something was crap enough, um, you just wouldn't be interested in it anymore. And it would it would fall by the wayside. So, so much of the 80s was able to tap into our sense of wonder. And we liked what we liked. You know, a lot of these things still hold up, especially the movies. You know, some things go down in flames, like the fashion. Um, you know, and you look back, you know, I say you look back at it a little more fondly. Some of the cartoons look a lot crappier than you may remember. Um, the music might even seem better than you remember. And there, it's kind of, it felt like a time where there was a bit of focus on the art and the medium, and we weren't oversaturated with so much content from every direction, you know, without social media and streaming services and multiple channels and YouTube that's coming at every which direction there was, you know, you, you had a little more focus on certain things and you could appreciate them a little more. Um, 
you know, as time goes by, these things might seem even more and more endearing over the years. And we'll look back at it even more fondly, you know, in another 10 or 20 years. So I realize this barely skims the surface, but hopefully you like this. Look back at what made the 80s the greatest decade. So thanks for listening. Um, If you like the show, you know, make sure you subscribe. Um, Leave it a rating and review if you really like it. That way more people get to see it. But that's it for me. See you later. Bye.